Once again, turn to the Lord and ask him to bless the reading and hearing of his holy word. Let's pray together. O Lord, help us now by your spirit to hear your holy word. And having heard your word, to joyfully and faithfully obey. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 6, verses 46 through 49. Hear the word of the Lord, it is written. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Although the gospel of Matthew's version of this parable might be more familiar to our ears, my guess is that this is easily one of the most well-known parables among Christians. We even have a children's song that we sung just a moment ago during our time of young disciples. And the wisdom of this parable in a worldly sense is extremely practical and immediately obvious in a way that even small children can grasp its truth. Just recently, my wife Elizabeth was talking in front of our children about Uh, some of our family friends who own a beach home in Pensacola, Florida, and my oldest child, Judah, heard all of this and at once exclaimed, don't they know that you can't build a house on sand? We need to tell them. A strong foundation is necessary for any building to stand, and shifting sand does not make for a good foundation. All you need to do to figure this out is stand on a beach as the tide rolls back into the ocean and feel the sand under your feet giving way. But I actually stood in that beach house after Hurricane Ivan hit Pensacola in 2004. Clearly, its foundation went a little deeper than the sand all around it since it wasn't washed away by what turned out to be a very strong Category 3 storm. Everything in the house was ruined when the storm surge came in and flooded the house, but the house was structurally sound after the storm. The same was not unfortunately true of some of the neighboring houses on that beach where all that was left were empty lots. So there is immense wisdom in making sure that structures we put up in life are built on sturdy foundations. And standing on that storm-ravaged beach all those years ago helped me to understand this truth. Jesus wants us to understand here in this parable 
that what is wise in a material, worldly sense is also wise in a spiritual sense. Just as a building needs a strong foundation, so too do our lives. But what is it to practice wisdom by building on a strong foundation, spiritually speaking? The answer is fairly simple. Hear Jesus and obey him. But we shouldn't let the simplicity and practicality of this parable betray its depth. In order to really dig down into this parable, we must first understand what Jesus is contrasting here. He isn't contrasting one who has been trained in proper construction technique with one who hasn't. The contrast isn't drawing a line between one who has adequate knowledge and one who doesn't. The issue here is not a lack of knowledge. We shouldn't miss here that the builders in the parable are both hearers. What distinguishes them from one another then is obedience. The wise man not only hears but also obeys. What the parable is presenting us with then is a scenario of two men trained in building, if you will, but one who is diligent about establishing a good foundation before erecting his structure and the other who hastily just begins building. And this is where we realize what Jesus is getting at. Just as the case was in the parable of the ten virgins this past Sunday, Jesus gives this parable to those who claim to be his people. He warns that two men might both have what appears externally to be true faith until that moment of crisis comes. I remember standing on that Pensacola beach at that property owned by our friends just a year or two before Ivan hit. The houses all appeared to be beautiful beach homes, and one would assume that they had been built to withstand a strong storm. The strength of their foundations was completely indiscernible, though. It wasn't until after the storm hit that the truth was revealed and the weaknesses were exposed. And therefore, Jesus is using this parable to issue a call for self-examination. And even as we might quickly acknowledge that it is utter foolishness to build without a proper foundation, we must hold our lives up to the mirror of this parable. What does it show us about ourselves? Is the edifice of my life built on sturdy ground? Will it hold up to a storm? And if we are to answer that question, then we must begin with the foundation itself. What is the strong foundation in this parable? Well, the easy and obvious answer is that the strong foundation is the words or teachings of Jesus Christ. Jesus leads into the parable by saying, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And since Jesus identifies the one who hears his words and obeys as the wise builder, building on a strong foundation, we understand that building on a strong foundation means hearing and heeding the teachings of Jesus Christ. But if we dig deeper we would find that Jesus' teachings provide a solid foundation because 
his teachings are based in himself. They cannot be separated from his person. His teachings are about himself. They point to himself. They give witness to who he is. So it's not simply his teachings that provide for a strong foundation. At a much more basic level, it is Jesus Christ himself who is the strong foundation. And God's word attests to this. God says through the prophet Isaiah, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. A cornerstone is a foundation stone. All the rest of the construction is built in reference to the stone. It determines the position of the rest of the structure. And who is this cornerstone about whom Isaiah speaks? Well, the apostle Peter in Acts 4 proclaims to the council of rulers and elders and scribes in Jerusalem, Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In his letter to the church in Ephesus, the apostle Paul too declares the church to be fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So Jesus Christ is the foundation. He is the cornerstone on which and around which the church takes shape. He is the rock on which we build our lives if we are wise. And he is the foundation because, as the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So Jesus Christ is our creator and our sustainer. But Paul continues, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." So Jesus is not only our creator and sustainer, Jesus Christ is also our redeemer, the one in whom we are reconciled to God and brought from death to life. Certainly, if you want to build your life on something or someone, the one who has created you, sustains you, and redeems you is a good place to start. He is the one who formed you and knows you. He is the one who provides for your every need. He is the one who, even while you were an enemy of God, loved you and worked to reconcile you to himself by his atoning sacrificial death. There's a poignant moment in the sixth chapter of John's gospel where Jesus has just proclaimed that he is the bread of life. While some of those who are following him were offended by his teaching about himself and were grumbling about it. And John's gospel tells us, after this, many disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, 
do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And there you have it. To whom shall we find life? To whom shall we go for the construction of a life that will last into eternity? Jesus has the words of eternal life because he is the way, the truth, and the life. So before we can truly obey his teachings, we must first believe. We must believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And if we truly believe he is who he says he is, only then will we turn away from our sin and place our faith in him as the only way of salvation, as our only hope, as our only source of meaning and purpose in life. But here's the shocking thing about this parable. It's telling us that there are some who will hear this truth and perhaps even acknowledge this truth, but fail to obey him. In other words, they have all the right information. They have been trained in righteousness, as it were, and yet they do not obey. There's a warning then. There's a warning then here that intellectual orthodoxy doesn't indicate saving faith necessarily. This parable presents us with the possibility that we can know all the right things to believe. We can have heard and acknowledged the teachings of Jesus Christ to be true. We can have even made a verbal profession of faith. We can be sound in our doctrine and even passionate in its defense, but not actually obey the teachings of Jesus Christ not actually place our faith in him and thus reveal ourselves to be lacking a strong foundation, a true and saving faith. This is what Jesus is speaking to when he asks why people call him Lord, Lord, but do not obey him. Even as they acknowledge him as Lord, they do not submit themselves to his rule. And dearly beloved, we need to acknowledge that there is among evangelicals like us, a temptation to be able to talk a big game about faith, even if our words aren't backed by action. There are times when there seems to be more pressure to be articulate about faith than to actually live faithfully. Charles Spurgeon spoke of this temptation. He stated the common temptation is instead of really repenting to talk about repentance. Instead of heartily believing to say, I believe without believing, instead of truly loving to talk of love without loving. Instead of coming to Christ to speak about coming to Christ and to profess to come to Christ and yet not to come at all. It's an easy thing to do in, this, in the circles we live in, isn't it? To speak of faithful living. We could go right through the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, which are the context for this parable in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. And we could say that we believe and we know intellectually that we're called to be kind and patient and loving. We could say that we believe and know intellectually that we are called to uphold the sanctity of marriage. 
in human sexuality. We could say that we believe and know intellectually that it's important to be people of truth. We could say that we believe and know intellectually ourselves to be ambassadors of reconciliation. We could say that we believe and know intellectually that prayer and fasting are essential devotional practices. We could say all of these things. In fact, saying these things in our circles would produce a hearty amen. But we could, all the while, be fostering in ourselves a state of anger and hatred. We could be negligent in our marriages. We could be defiling our purity with pornography. We could be unconcerned with honesty or deceitful or malicious in what we say to and about others. We could be refusing to offer and seek forgiveness. We could be slow to spend time on our knees and in devotion before the Lord. This is exactly what John Bunyan is trying to capture in his character talkative in his book, Pilgrim's Progress. Christian, who is the main character, says of talkative, he talketh of prayer, of repentance, of faith, of new birth. But he knows but only to talk of them. I have been in his family, in his house is empty, as empty of religion as the white of an egg is of savor. Just like talkative, all of our words might point to a strong foundation, but our private lives might demonstrate otherwise. Who would know, though, if our obedience were lacking in these areas, unless someone had an opportunity to explore our spiritual home? Jesus then warns us here in this parable that just because we hear God's word, just because we make ourselves familiar with it and even agree with it, that this alone doesn't protect us from being the spiritual fool. And this is the height of folly, right? To know the truth, or at least to claim to know the truth, but to fail to live it. And so I think it's worth exploring in our time remaining why it might be that one who has heard and knows the truth might fail to obey. So first, we might fail to obey because what Jesus calls us to is difficult. There are many areas of our lives where we know what is right, but we don't do it because it's hard. For instance, I know that I should be working out regularly. I don't do it because it is painful. And just shortly before the telling of this parable in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. It seems like a harsh word, but the reality is that there will be many who are met with Jesus, who is the narrow gate, and will recognize his authority and will choose not to enter through him. Matthew's gospel concludes the Sermon on the Mount like this. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Notice what Matthew doesn't say here, though. As Sinclair Ferguson notes, Matthew pointedly refrains from telling us that the people obeyed it. They thought it was the most 
admirable sermon they had ever heard. Indeed, it is the most admirable sermon anyone has ever heard. In fact, it is the most admired sermon in human history. But Jesus did not preach it in order to be admired for his homiletical skills, for his preaching skills. He preached it to produce obedience. He preached it so that the authority people recognized in his preaching might be realized in their lives. But even as some will hear and will recognize the authority of Jesus Christ, the reality is that establishing a foundation on rock requires some digging. It's hard work. And those of you who have been around uh, new construction projects know the tedious nature of putting in a strong foundation. I remember when we were building this sanctuary, it seemed like forever to really get going. But what was happening was all the dirt work was being done. All the unsavory dirt was being removed. The new dirt was being brought in and packed down. It was a painstaking process. Then the foundation was slowly and meticulously laid. And once all that work was finally completed, it seemed like it took only an instant to get the entire building framed out and everything began to take shape. But the front end of the project had to move slowly and deliberately. It needed to be done with attention and care for the attention given to what followed wouldn't have mattered if the foundation didn't hold. So it is with laying a foundation in Jesus Christ. There is the hard work of removing sin from our lives and dying to ourselves and then positioning ourselves to be filled with God, filled by God in the power of his Holy Spirit, of pursuing personal relationship with Jesus, of struggling to know him through careful study of his word and meditation on his word, of undergoing the painful process of allowing his word to refine us, of unhurriedly seeking after his face through prayer and fasting. It's hard and tedious work. And for what? Something that will, in the end, remain largely hidden. It's easy then to bypass this most important task of digging down and establishing a solid foundation on the rock. No no one will notice anyhow, right? We would rather get to the exciting part of the building, the part of the building that will bring us an immediate sense of satisfaction and delight, the part that will be noticed and admired by all. So secondly, there's temptation to take the short view, to opt for the immediate pleasure over the tedious work that promises pleasure in the distant future. And this is why we know what we should and shouldn't be eating But too often, we eat whatever we want anyhow. There's immediate pleasure in eating what we want, and the health consequences might be way down the road. And so, too, do we skip the process of foundation building and jump right into building the structure of our lives. We don't have time for that hidden work. So rather than spending time and effort allowing the Lord to shape and mold us, we hastily determine what we consider to be good. And this might be a very moral life by all worldly standards, one that brings the acclaim of men. 
when Elizabeth and I were finishing grad school and had received our first jobs out of school, we were excited about the opportunity to finally be buying a home after living in apartments for years. And we spent hours online looking at homes in South Carolina where we would be moving to from Pittsburgh. And we found a house that we both really liked. And Elizabeth had the opportunity to go and see this house in person. The house was nestled on a quiet street in a nice neighborhood, not too far from the church that I would be serving and not too far from the clinic where she would be working. The house was a little older, but it had some really, really nice upgrades. Best of all, it had been owned by a carpenter who had outfitted this house with some beautiful woodwork. It had intricate cabinetry in the kitchen and bathrooms. It had some really gorgeous woodwork around the fireplace. And so we made an offer on the the home, which to our excitement was accepted. And as many of you know, when you get a contract on a house, you get a general home inspection done before proceeding. The house looked to be in beautiful condition. It had been beautifully maintained. So we were shocked when the inspection report came back. There were some of the usual issues you find on an older home, such as a dated electrical system. But what really concerned us was what was under the house. The house was built on a conventional foundation. Some of the piers holding up the house were stacked cinder blocks. And I'm not talking about cinder blocks neatly stacked and mortared together. I mean cinder blocks of all different shapes and sizes hastily stacked like a Jenga game with nothing holding them together. And that was all that we needed to see to pull out of the contract. It doesn't matter how wonderful all the visible aspects are of a home. It doesn't matter how beautiful the flooring is, how stately the granite countertops, how exquisite the bathrooms, how spectacular the stainless steel appliances. None of that stuff really matters if the foundation isn't any good. But we're much more drawn to the visible stuff, aren't we? This is why HGTV is so popular. They aren't laying foundations. They're beautifying something that was ugly. Unfortunately, so we are too often with our spiritual lives. We neglect what is unseen for what is seen. And when we move right to the visible, it's easy to convince ourselves that we are doing well because we might be seeking to live moral lives. We're trying hard to obey. But obedience to Jesus Christ cannot be reduced to simple moralism. This isn't what obedience means in this parable. While its context of the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain is the ethics of the kingdom which Jesus brings, these sermons are not teaching moralism. They are gospel through and through, and we see it from the very first beatitude at the front end of these sermons, which sets the tone for everything that follows. Blessed are the poor, or the poor in spirit, as Matthew's gospel says it, for yours is the kingdom of God. 
The sermons begin with an acknowledgement that only those who recognize themselves first and foremost to be spiritually bankrupt are members of God's kingdom. Only those who come before God completely empty-handed, recognizing that they are utterly incapable of pleasing God and meriting his favor, will be blessed. These sermons, then, are the ethics for those who understand themselves to be saved by the grace of God alone and filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. This means that the content of these sermons is not telling us what we must do to be saved by God. It's telling us the characteristics of those who have been saved by God's grace. What hearing and obeying Jesus means in this parable then is not simply living a moral life. It's basing our life upon the foundation of Jesus Christ in a way that our character and our worldview are shaped by him. As one theologian states, the wise builder having by the faith of truth found the only sure foundation, erects on it an edifice of thoughts and feelings and actions. He is molded according to the form of doctrine into which he has been delivered. This means that our lives will not be shaped by moral platitudes, but by the be attitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. If we want to obey Jesus, then we begin by acknowledging that we are sinners in need of grace. We begin by mourning over our sin. We begin by humbling ourselves before the Lord. We begin by seeking after righteousness, the righteousness granted to us in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the obedience that Jesus is looking for because from this, a life of love and forgiveness and self-giving flows. There is no shortcut to these things. Therefore, we need to be careful with what Jesus is teaching us here. He's not teaching us that you will fare well in life and in the final judgment if only you lead a good moral life. That isn't it. We're not justified by our actions, but by our faith. And we see this more clearly in Matthew's gospel, where right before he tells this parable, Jesus tells his disciples that there will be some who, on the day of judgment, point to the mighty works that they have done, claiming to be his people, and Jesus responds to them. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. We can't, after all, somehow live rightly when we have not believed rightly first. There isn't proper obedience without proper faith first. And if we're trying to do this, what we're really doing is building a life on ourselves and not on Jesus Christ. So even though our lives might look really good and moral, this parable is warning us that it is not our actions alone that matter. Be sure to be building on the proper foundation. One last final reason that we might hear but fail to obey. We might have confused emotional response to Jesus' teachings for true faithful action. We might have confused emotional response to Jesus' teachings for true faithful action. We might 
misjudge a feeling of contentment or conviction or challenge or comfort that was produced in us by hearing God's word as a proper response without ever taking true action. So we might feel convicted by God's word, but never really truly repent. We might feel challenged by God's word to be conformed to his word, but never actually be moved to change. We might feel comforted by the promises offered in scripture, but never actually place our faith in them. This is the same thing that happens when we watch the news. We see, for instance, suffering in another part of the world which produces in us sadness and sympathy. But then how often does that emotion lead to action that works to alleviate the suffering? Perhaps rarely. And what's really happening is that our hearts are being hardened to never take action because we become satisfied with the emotion alone. This parable is a word of warning to those of us who are constantly hearing God's word. And I know that I am personally guilty of having heard a sermon that stirred me emotionally, one that I could say amen to, but then I failed to seek to conform my life to its message. Dearly beloved, we could be hardening ourselves to action. We must beware. But whatever the reason, whether it be the difficulty of following Jesus, our pursuit of our own immediate pleasures, our concern for outward appearance, or our confusion with emotional response, this parable calls us to look below the surface. Look below the surface of your creedal orthodoxy. Look below the surface of your religious lifestyle and your good works. Look below the surface of your emotion. Look to see if you have built your life on the rock of Jesus Christ. Look to see if your life conforms to the character of the kingdom of God. You can find these weaknesses now and repent of them. Or you can be washed away when the storm comes. And the storm is coming for all of us. So may it be true of us. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray by your spirit that we would not only hear your word this day, but that we would indeed obey it. That where we are convicted of our sin, that we would repent. Where we are challenged to faithful living, Lord, that our lives would be conformed to your word. Lord, where we feel comforted by your word, that we would place our faith in the hope that your word offers us. Lord, may this be true of us. May we truly be your people who have built our lives upon the rock of Jesus Christ. And may the storms of life, may the final judgment reveal that he is truly our strong foundation. For we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I invite you to stand with me and now affirm 
what you believe in response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Dearly beloved, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.